Well, as many of you know, uh, I went to college uh, first at Iowa State, but then at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And one of the things about, you, about Moody that's really unique is that in 127, 28 years, however long it's been that they've been in existence, they've never charged tuition. Some parents there just perked up. What? My kid's going to Moody. How do we get in there? They've never charged tuition. In fact, when I got my bill for tuition for Moody every semester on the bottom, it would say, uh, however many thousand dollars has been faithfully donated for your education this semester. Isn't that incredible? The only thing you had to pay for was room and board, which equated to about half of what somebody else going to college to a state school would pay. And God was incredibly gracious to me in that and to anyone who's been to Moody. Well, one thing that came along with that, though, is that uh, there were certain responsibilities you had to meet, obviously, because your education is being paid for. And one of the things Moody would do is they would have conferences and all kinds of stuff uh, over breaks when we were gone. So our spring break was actually two weeks long instead of one because they would have uh, some conference time there and they would bring in uh, grad students for cohorts and they would would spend the week there. But in order for them to spend the week there, guess what you had to do as a student before you left? You had to clean your room. And in fact, because they would use your room, you had to have your room clean. You had to have a drawer cleared out for somebody to use in your, in your dresser. Your desk had to be cleared off. You pulled off all your sheets and packed them away. So they'd bring in uh, ones from the university to, to be used there. You had to have space left in your closet for some guy to use when they came. And then you had to meet an inspection before you could leave campus or you'd face all kinds of fines. And my RA, his name was Bradley. I love him, but he was a stickler. For the rules. I mean, it, it was, if it was in the rule book, that's the way he had to do it. And he would say the same thing if he was here. He'd laugh at that right now. But the first time I did this, I remember Bradley came down to, to check my room out. I'm thinking, oh, I got it clean. No problem. I can head home. No big deal. And we get in the room and he pulls out a white glove. I'm like, what in the world is going on? I had and he's, I'm like, my room's clean. And he starts wiping his finger along the top of, I mean, he was a stickler. He wiped his finger along the top of the door, like the door frame and on the desk and on the shelf. And no, I don't think you're done. And what I thought was the standard wasn't really the standard. I thought, oh, it just had to be clean the way I saw it. Then we'd be in good shape. The standard is a lot higher than I expected. You ever had something like that in your life? Where the standard of the way you did something or what you expected was much higher than you ever anticipated it was. Well, I'll give you another story, another example. There's one guy, I just thought this was funny, I want to share it with you. His name was Dennis Lee Curtis. He was arrested in 1992 in Rapid City, South Dakota. And he apparently, he was a a burglar, he was a a thief, but he he had some standards, After he was arrested in in his wallet, here's what the police found on a sheet of paper in his wallet. He had this code that he lived by as a thief. Number one, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Number two, I will take cash and food stamps, no checks. Number three, I will only rob at night. Number four, I will not wear a mask. Number five, I will not rob mini marts or 7-Eleven stores. Number six, if I get chased by the cops on foot, I will get away. But if I'm chased by vehicle, I won't put the lives of innocent others in danger. I will only rob seven months out of the year. 
And then number eight, I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. He had a sense of morality about him, but the problem was that when he faced the judge and the standard of the state for being a thief and robbing someone was laid out before him, his standard, which was a little lower, didn't matter anymore, did it? Because there was a higher standard. Well, what we're going to see this morning is, is Jesus explains that oftentimes, especially for the scribes and Pharisees, the standard they had in mind for what God expected was so much higher than they ever dreamed. And oftentimes for us, the standard we believe God expects of our lives is so unbelievably high. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into the text this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you uh, for his perfect life, for him uh, dying on the cross for my sin, meeting death, as we sang, in the grave, and then rising from the grave so that, uh, that I could have his life that I could have his righteousness, that he took my sin and he made me clean. I'll let that truth be clear to us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd fill me and speak through me and to me as I teach. And uh, may we leave changed, more like your son, more like Jesus, growing ever in righteousness. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been uh, studying the life and ministry of Jesus almost this entire year. And uh, right now we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're taking all four Gospels, we're going through all of them together, and right now we're kind of camping out in Matthew. And in Matthew, we're in chapter 5, it's the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 21, here's what Jesus says. He starts like this, and what you're going to see is in him explaining that God's standard is higher than maybe your standard, he's going to say six times, and, and just for the record, like each of these six passages of Scripture could be their own sermon. Each of them could probably be their own series for that matter. But we're going to take all of them together for me just to at once so that we can show Jesus is, is, is making a continuous point here throughout all six of these interchanges. The first one, he starts them all like this. You have heard it was said. Here's what you heard. And then he's going to come back, but I say to you. So here's the first one. First one, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Well, he's quoting from the Old Testament, specifically from the Ten Commandments. I mean, everybody kind of knows that one, right? Uh, what's one of the Ten Commandments? Uh, don't kill people. Ding, ding, ding. You got it. Jesus is like, you've heard that, right? You've heard that. He says, and if you do that, you'll be liable to judgment. Their understanding in the Old Testament, God made it clear that uh, capital punishment was the offense from, or the, the, the sentence for the offense of murder. That if you murdered someone, you took someone else's life, your life was to be expected of you. It's, it's recorded a couple times in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 12 is one of those. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Capital punishment was God's idea because he sees life as being incredibly valuable. And this idea of being liable to judgment means, one, you'd be put to death, but two, you'd be sentenced then and you would face God's wrath in hell. Verse 22, then Jesus says, that's, that's what you understand, and you're right about that. But, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You, you think you'll be put to death simply for murder. I'm saying if you're angry with your brother, you're liable to that same judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. handful of things here. Jesus 
When he says this every time, when he says, but I say to you, he's not, as some might teach, abolishing what the law said. He's explaining the true intent of the law. He's explaining the fullness of it. He's not saying that doesn't apply anymore. He's saying, here's what this really means. It's a lot higher than just don't kill somebody. It's don't harbor anger in your heart towards your brother. It's don't uh, insult them. It's, it's don't call them a fool. Anger here refers to seething or brooding bitterness against someone. You ever experienced that kind of anger either toward someone or toward you? Jesus says that's sin. It's not sin to be angry in a righteous way, right? Jesus was angry and, he, and James tells us in your anger, do not sin. But we need to be careful. Anger is such a strong emotion. And for us being sinful people, when we get angry, it's very quickly that we start sinning in our anger. And in fact, John uh, points this out again later in, in John chapter th- 1 John chapter 3. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Jesus says, don't hold anger against them. He also says, uh, don't insult them. In other words, don't put them down. You know, you've, you've probably heard it said, I think uh, Pastor Bob Blonick had said it last weekend even, there's, there's two ways to make yourself feel better about yourself, right? Two ways to improve your standing in relation to others. One is to improve yourself. The other is to put the other person down. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Don't insult your brother. Don't insult people. And then he finally says, don't call them a fool. Don't call them a fool. You know what I learned this week? As I was studying this text, I looked at the Greek word for fool because I'm like, man, that seems pretty harsh just calling somebody. Because let's face it, there's people who are fools. The Bible says there's people who are fools. Jesus later calls people fools. You blind fools, he says to the Pharisees. When will you ever get it? What he's referring to here is, is when there's things placed in front of us, knowledge that, that, that would be there, and we're foolish. The Proverbs talk about this. And we don't do what we know we ought to do. We don't respond to what we know is true. And in, in the Greek, that word fool, it's a lot harsher than you might think. The Greek word for fool there is called moros. Or in, in the tense, Jesus uses it, it's more. But in another tense, it's moron. And it is the word we get our word moron from. Jesus says, when you call someone that, when you call your brother and you degrade them in that way, you're liable to the fire of hell. When you're angry with your brother, you're liable to the fire of hell. He's not speaking of it in terms of uh, correcting a wrong and, and calling someone foolish. He's just saying you're just degrading someone and calling them foolish. And just as a side, because this comes up multiple times in the passage this morning, Jesus says, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Let me just go on a sidetrack for a second. If you, in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven, right? And how people in that kingdom ought to live. Well, the reality is, is if you're not in the kingdom of heaven, if you do not enter the kingdom of heaven, you will enter the fires of hell that Jesus speaks of here. That's not popular, and I get that. I know that many in our society and even some pastors have gone so far as to say, well, I don't, I don't know what hell is, hell's all as awful as we make it to be. I don't think it lasts forever. I don't even know if it really exists. And they teach something sometimes called annihilationism where uh, when somebody dies, instead of going to hell to pay the penalty for their sin, they're just burned up and they're gone. 
Except the Bible doesn't teach that. And I share this with you not to, not to put, well, I guess to put fear in you, but it's out of love so that you would know the truth and respond to it. See, when Jesus, Jesus speaks of hell an awful lot, and the reality is about hell is that it's hot, the fire of it is unquenchable, and forever is a long time. Some debate the reality of it as a place of eternal conscious torment, but the word Jesus uses here is Gehenna, is the word he uses for hell. And it refers to a place uh, that they would have known in that day as the Valley of, of Hinnom, I think is how you pronounce that, south of Jerusalem. And this valley was known for two things. In the Old Testament, there was a pagan god named Moloch. And uh, whenever you see pagan god, by the way, uh, it, it really is, it's a demon behind that god, in my opinion. And, and I believe there's probably a demon named Moloch who is incredibly powerful. And the people there would sacrifice their children to this pagan god. That was their act of worship, to sacrifice their children and to burn them on the altar. Isn't that awful? The second thing that this valley was known for is in the reign of King Josiah, it was the trash dump for the city. And all the trash was piled there and it was burned so that it would consume the trash and it would consume the worms that infested the trash. And it was said of that, uh, that burn pile that the, the flames of it were unquenchable, that they never went out, that it burned day and night. And this is the place Jesus is referring to when he says hell. He says Gehenna, the place where the flames are unquenchable. They burn day and night. And in, in Revelation, it talks about those who don't trust Jesus Christ, that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Hell is real. The flames are unquenchable. It's unbelievably awful. Forever is a long time. Who are you warning about hell? Because if there is a kingdom of heaven, there are flames of hell. By God's grace, if you would trust him, you'd be delivered from that into his kingdom. Not because of anything you do, as we'll see this morning, but all because of what Jesus does. But back to our main point for the morning. You've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder, you'll face judgment. Jesus says, anger towards your brother or sister will send you to hell. He goes on in verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift. Jesus is, is repeating what the prophets in the Old Testament said over and over and over, that God desires obedience before he desires sacrifice. If you're going to come give a gift, be obedient first before you give your gift. God is much more concerned with your heart than he is with what you give. And he's saying if you come to, to give your gift and you know that somebody has something against you, go and, as Paul says, in as much as it depends on you, try to be at peace with all men. Go make it right. Ask for forgiveness and then come offer your gift. Don't harbor anger, but he seems to be saying, don't let others harbor anger towards you if you can prevent it. He says, come to terms quickly, verse 25, with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, under Roman law... When you would go to civil court, you would actually walk to court with your accuser or with the one you were accusing. 
And the way Roman law worked in terms of, of civil law is if on your way to the court, you could at any time, the two of you uh, that you had your grudge with or who had the grudge with you, you could, you could work out some kind of settlement between the two of you at any time on your way. But once you got to the court, once you got before the judge, the judge's verdict was final and there was no going back on it. And the verdict, one of the verdicts was that you were to be sold into slavery for the person who you owe. And you would work and work and work, you and your family, until the debt was repaid. The other thing is that you could be, uh, all your things would be sold and you'd be thrown into prison until every debt was paid. Jesus says, you won't get out until you've paid the last penny. He's saying, go make things right with your brother and sister. Loved ones, forgive one another. Forgiving is hard. But go make things right. Do it before it comes before the judge. Do it of your own accord, Jesus is saying. Don't wait until you need someone else to step in and resolve it. Well, that's the first one. Is you, you've heard murder would send you to hell, but I say anger with your brother or sister will. Verse, five, or verse 27 of chapter 5, Jesus gives a second one. He says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting here again from the Ten Commandments. And adultery, as they would have understood it, and as we understand it, is uh, having sex with someone who's not your spouse. It's adultery. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, the Pharisees and many of us, we would look at that first one and we'd go, oh, I haven't done that. I'm all right on this one. And then Jesus says, yeah, but have you ever thought a lustful thought? Have you ever spent time looking too long or thinking too much or engaging in that way in your heart? And suddenly, I would guess, with very rare exception, every person in this room, including the guy talking, has failed at that. And, and by simply lusting in our hearts, let alone anything else, we've committed adultery. You know what the penalty for adultery was? To be stoned to death. Remember the woman who is supposedly caught in the act of adultery and Jesus rescues her and says, let he who sinned cast the first stone. See, the, the reality is Jesus says you, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. God looks at the heart. You know, First Samuel sixteen seven, when they're choosing a king and the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lust, you're committing adultery in your heart. Jesus goes on then to give some application on this point. He says, well, then if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. There's, there it is again. There's Jesus speaking of hell again. And he goes on. He says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I have a question. Is Jesus being literal here? Because some people have interpreted this literally. And they've maimed themselves in order to be obedient and done all kinds of crazy things. But is Jesus being, well, let me ask it this way. If you gouge your eyes out, men, can you still lust? Yeah. 
You still may have those images in your mind or those thoughts in your mind, right? So, so clearly that's not what, I don't think he's speaking figuratively. He's, or he is speaking figuratively, not literally. He's exaggerating to make a point. And his point is this, that uh, if we're part of the kingdom, we need to take extreme measures to get rid of sin in our lives. Sometimes that means avoiding a friendship. Sometimes that means uh, disabling uh, certain internet accounts. Sometimes that means uh, getting rid of cable. Sometimes that means not reading that magazine. Sometimes, what does it mean? It means take extreme measures to get rid of sin. Jesus desires for us to be holy. The standard is so much higher than we ever imagined. And we all fail. Every one of us. He adds a third. He says in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is referring to Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 where um, basically in that day men were objectifying women. They were uh, using them, spitting them out. Um, divorcing them just for any reason because they weren't happy. Doesn't sound at all like our culture, does it? And, and, and just for any reason, they were doing this. And, and God tells Moses to give them a certificate of divorce. What was this for? Well, this was to protect the woman, ultimately. There are other reasons too, but I believe ultimately there was this thing there to protect the woman from even more shame and more contempt in their culture and Men would often divorce their wives for the most ridiculous reasons. Um, But Jesus says to you that, uh, no, you can't just divorce your wife for any reason. You can't just divorce your spouse for any reason. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is saying you can't just be getting a divorce for any reason you want. Now, this passage is incredibly difficult for us in a day and age where divorce is rampant, isn't it? And I'll be honest with you, it's hard for me to understand in the sense of what, what do we do when somebody, and I know this has affected many in our church, so I'm trying to speak truth as I understand it, but also speak with grace, both of those because I love you, okay? Um, when he speaks of of divorce, I mean, or excuse me, when, when we come to how do we apply this, so many people get divorced in our culture. What do you do when someone comes into the church and they've been divorced and they want to remarry? And some churches have really hard lines on this and they say, no, we'll, we'll never marry someone who's been previously divorced. Or uh, if they've been divorced, they're to be shunned. Or, or, Okay, if they're divorced and even for good grounds, but we can't let them remarry because Jesus says, if you remarry a divorced person, you cause them to commit adultery. You commit adultery. This is tough, isn't it? And and in tough situations like this, I think my default, just to give you where I've come on this, is in the past, I would have leaned very heavily on that side of, boy, I I don't know about remarriage then. I I don't know about if that's, an acceptable thing or not. But there's other passages we have to take into consideration as we interpret scripture. One is um, 
if that divorce happened before someone had become a Christian, well, after you become a Christian, what are you? A new creation with a new slate, with a clean slate. And so, yeah, you can be remarried for sure, in my opinion, as I understand the text. But also then, if, if Jesus' blood on the cross forgives us and cleanses us from all things, no matter what I do, we teach that, right? You believe that? That, that no matter, I mean, the, the thief on the cross hanging with Jesus he didn't do anything to earn God's favor, but Jesus just simply looks at him and says, what? You've been forgiven. Today you'll be with me in paradise. If, if Jesus' blood covers all things, isn't there a sense in which it would cover divorce as well? To be remarried? I, I think so, but at the same time, there's teaching that says, don't get remarried. And I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I, I, I get really confused on this issue and I go back and forth. You okay with that? <laughs> and as a church, we don't have a hard line standard on this. And what we do for someone who desires to get remarried uh, is, is we look at it on a case-by-case basis. And we find out, okay, is the person really repentant? Is, what were the situations here? Because it's, let's just be, it's a muddy, messy thing. But I would say to you, if you've, you've been divorced, you've been remarried, um, even if if it is the hard line and I'm, I'm wrong on some of this, that, it, that God's grace, his grace to you through Jesus Christ still covers your sin and he still forgives you and makes you new. So now go and live as someone who's forgiven. It's a really tough topic, right? And I hope I'm handling it with grace and I'll, I'll try to answer questions you have, but that's a whole nother sermon or series or all kinds of stuff that we don't have time to get into today. But in any case, Jesus' point, again, is back to this fact of, you've heard it said, you can divorce for any reason. I say, God hates divorce, cherish your marriage. The standard is a lot higher than you think it is. It's a lot higher than you think it is. He goes on with another one. Verse 33, again, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Seems like a good thing. If you you make a promise to God, keep the promise. He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it's the throne of God. Or by the earth, for it's his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And ultimately what he's saying in, in summary, just to sum it up, he's saying, uh, don't, don't swear upon the Lord. Just be a man or woman of your word where your yes means yes and your no means no. And you don't have to be like, oh, no, I promise. I promise this time I'm going to do that. Because you want people to finally believe you. Just be a person of your word where they take you at your word and you don't have to make an oath to begin with. Um, when, when he says, you know, don't, By earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. By heaven, for it's the throne of God. The the leaders of that day, they they had basically made up more rules, again, to try to be obedient, but it just complicated everything. And the leaders said that if, well, if they 
technicalities of religious people. Remember that from a few weeks ago? They, they get, tried to get off on technicalities. The leader said if they swore by heaven or by the earth or by Jerusalem, they could get out of their oath without penalty because they didn't make a vow in God's name. Oh, I didn't swear by God. I swore by heaven. Oh, no, I swore by Jerusalem. I can get out of this. No, no, no. I... And, and Jesus is saying, don't you get it that, that that's, that's God's? And the king is God's and the earth, that's his footstool. And they go on then in, in verse 33, do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. Jesus is saying, even if, even if you make it on your own head, don't you understand that you are not your own? So when you make an oath like that, you think you're getting out of it, but the standard isn't that, it's are you keeping your promises? It doesn't matter what, you know, if you pinky swore or, or what, right? It's like, do you keep your promises? He says, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So how about you? Are you the kind of person who uh, is known by their word? Or do you have to, to swear to it? You know, I pinky swear. I, I, I double pinky swear. Are you a man or a woman of your word? Jesus says, be a man or woman of your word. The standard's higher than just making an oath. It's, it's keeping it. Verse 38, you've heard it said that it, it, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is in the Old Testament as well, in Exodus chapter 21 and in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, I think. Um, but it, the law of retribution, and this seems really harsh to us at first, but the reason it was there is it gave standards by which a punishment then would fit the crime, in a sense, for judges as they doled things out. Uh, but the problem is, is it, it was for the vengeance of the court or for the judge or for God, not for individuals. See, Jesus says, I say to you, don't, don't resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say, turn the other cheek. He goes on, if, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. See, there was a, a law in the Old Testament where if your tunic was your inner garment, close to the skin, your cloak was like the heavy outer garment, like your coat. And if somebody would sue you for your cloak, you could give it to them for the day. But at the end of the day, you had to give that back to them because that might be the only piece of clothing they had. And it would have been used as a blanket or as a pillow or as a covering. And a cloak couldn't be kept. But Jesus is saying, no, just give them everything. Give him everything. If anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go with him two miles. What's that about? When in the Roman government, a soldier could come along and could say, Ashley, here's my load. Pick it up, carry it. And you would have to carry it under the law for 1,000 paces or a mile. You were forced to. This caused great resentment for the Jews towards the Romans, right? Because they, they were then subject to Roman authority. No, I can't believe it. And Jesus says, listen, if somebody forces you to carry it for one mile, show them who your real authority is and say, no, I'll, I'll go too. I'll go too. Go the extra mile. You ever hear that? That's where it comes from. Jesus says, go the extra mile. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say, turn the other cheek. Think of others better than yourself. He gives a, a final one then in verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And the reality is, Scripture never said that. It said, love your neighbor. It never said, hate your enemy. This was something that had been tacked on by the religious leaders. And when it said, love your neighbor, who, who's your neighbor? Well, the, the Pharisees would have taught that it was just other Jewish people, not Gentiles. Some Pharisees went so far as to teach it's just other Pharisees, not other people. But Jesus refutes both of those when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, right? And he refutes that idea when, well, who, who's the neighbor? Well, it's the one who helped him. It's the Samaritan. It's the, the outcast, the Gentile, the worst of the worst. And I'm to love them. They had, they had added on this whole hate your enemy idea. But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies too. The standard's higher than just loving those who love you. He says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The, the tax collectors do the same thing. Think about that. People who have nothing to do with God, who have nothing to do with church. Do they love other people? Yeah, they do. See, the command, by the way, wasn't love your enemy and, and hate, or love yourself and hate your enemy. It was love your neighbor. I just said it totally wrong, didn't I? It wasn't love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It was love your neighbor as yourself. Because we all love ourselves. That's easy. And we love those who we like and who love us. That's easy. Everybody does that, Jesus says. You really want to be part of the kingdom? Love the people who are your enemies. Love the people who you see profaning God's name. Love the people who you see on the news who have done horrible, unthinkable crimes. Love the people who have sinned against you. Love your enemies. How's that easy? No, it's not. But you know, the reality is in every single one of these instances, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said this, but I say this. The but I say part is something that Jesus himself does. And what he's saying in all of this is, be like me. Be like me. Does God love his enemies? Let me ask you that. Does he love his enemies? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. In fact, Romans chapter 5, while we were still sinners, or some translations say, while we were still his, fill in the blank for me, enemy, Christ did what? He died for us. He loved me while I was still his enemy. So if I'm going to be a son of God, called the son of my father who's in heaven, then I need to live like that. And I need to love those who don't yet love me. The standard is so much higher than we think it is. In fact, the standard's so high, Jesus wraps it up by saying, verse 48, Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. See, if you look back at verse 20, at the very beginning of all this, Jesus, Pastor Stephen preached on this a couple Sundays ago, but, but he said, if, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, then your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It has to be super high. And then he gives this whole list of examples. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. 
You, you've heard it said it was this standard, but you have to exceed it. And he gets to verse 48 here and he says, therefore, therefore, what's a therefore, therefore? You got to look back at everything before, right? Therefore, in light of everything I've just said, be perfect. And then you got it. You, you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven? No sweat. Just live a perfect life. Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. But, but that's not what I heard. I thought the standard, the thing I thought all my life was, if I want to get to heaven, there's, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to stand in front of the pearly, I've heard the jokes, I'm going to stand in front of the pearly gate, St. Peter's going to be there, and it's going to, there's going to be like this big scale, I've seen it on Looney Tunes, right? And like they're going to weigh all my good things on this side, and all my evil things on this side, and whichever balances out, that, that gets me in, Right? And I'm telling you, I looked at people around me. I look all around and I didn't do what he did. I didn't mess up like that gal. I, I didn't screw up like my dad did. I didn't do that. I'm good, right? Jesus says, be perfect like your father is perfect. And, and the standard is, is not how you measure up to other people. It's how you measure up to God. And loved ones, the reality is that no one meets that standard. No one, no one does. And Jesus calls us to live a life that's perfect. He does. He calls you to live a life of holiness where you do not sin, where you don't mess up, where you live like your father who's perfect because he's perfect. Other times he says uh, to, to be holy just as your heavenly father is holy, to be merciful like your heavenly father is merciful. How's perfection going for you? How's it going? That's bad news, isn't it? I mean, I, I have no hope. I'm just going to pack it in. I'm done. There's no use going on if, if that's the end of the story. Just that bad news. The bad news that, that if I do any of these things, I'm liable to judgment. I'm liable to the fires of hell. Josh Wyland, a sinner, deserves to burn for eternity in hell. And if you're like, yeah, but I thought you are pretty nice. You don't get it then. If you could see in my mind, if you could see in my heart, if you could see me the way God sees me in my sin, I deserve hell and nothing less. I could think of it like this. If you're the captain of a huge ship, right? And uh, you're out in the sea and you have an anchor on a long chain and that chain has 613 links in the chain. Why do I pick that number? Well, the the Pharisees and the scribes had 613 commands they had found in the Old Testament that were required to obey. You and I, we are required to obey those. 613. Now that anchor sinks and all those links are together. What if, how many links in the chain have to be broken for the anchor to no longer hold? One. You're like, yeah, but I got like 300 of them that are good. Yeah, but it only takes one bad one for the rest of the chain just to sink to the bottom and there's no hope. 
In fact, James says it like this, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point becomes accountable for all of it. Perfection is the standard. Anything short of that, one link in the chain short of that, destines me for hell. James goes on, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you commit adultery but don't murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. See, loved ones, that's the bad news. One link is all it takes to send you straight to hell, to send me straight to hell. But there's good news too. And the reality is that unless I preach the bad news to you, the good news makes no sense. And sadly, there's many places, maybe you've been to churches where they, I don't want to teach the bad news. Let's just focus on the good news. Well, the good news loses all its meaning if you don't get the bad news. Because the good news is this, that while you were yet his enemy, Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. Your chain is broken all over the place holding that anchor, but Jesus is perfect. And he drops his anchor for you. And it's now no longer your righteousness that you're clinging on to, but Jesus' righteousness. Your only hope to enter the kingdom of heaven is to give Jesus your sin and let him give you his righteousness. Tom spoke on this a few weeks ago at Doctrine Wednesday. It's, it's theologically Jesus has imputed righteousness to you. It's this idea of transferring accounts. Tom used this illustration where if, if you transfer money from one account to another account, now it's in this account, it's all fully there. Well, there's a transfer of accounts that happens when we trust Jesus Christ, where my sin is transferred out of my account to his, and his righteousness is transferred out of his account to mine. And he bears my sin on the cross and pays the penalty for it, so that I would have all of his righteousness. Does that have anything to do with what I do? No. Other than faith, it's all based on what Jesus has done for me. That's the good news. And if you don't get the bad news, the good news makes no sense. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He transferred all of our sin to his account that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the reality is that Josh Weiland, the sinner, deserves hell for eternity. But the other truth is, because Josh has repented of his sin, because I've repented of my sin and given my life to Jesus Christ, do I still sin? Yes, but my identity is no longer a sinner. It's a saint. It's a saint. And when God sees me now, he sees me in his righteousness. You ever taken a piece of colored glass? The church I grew up in had all kinds of stained glass windows. Like on, on one side of the wall was Old Testament stories. The other side was New Testament stories. And they were down, they went all the way down about this far from the floor where as a little kid, you could look out them and push your face up against them and smudge them all up, Right? Well, one of the things I can remember doing when I was a little kid is I'd look through the glass, and if I'd look through the red glass, it was really cool because everything I saw outside, everybody's cars, everybody walking around, they looked like what? They looked red. And if I moved to the yellow, everybody looked yellow. And if I moved to the blue, everybody was blue or green. Everybody's green. And if you're in Jesus Christ, when he looks at you, he looks at you through the lens of in Christ, you're in Christ, and all he sees is your, his, Jesus' righteousness. Because your sin has been taken away by Jesus Christ. And you're made new. 
And this only happens, loved ones, through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified or declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by what you do, it's by your faith. Philippians 3, 8, 9, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Many of you have made that decision. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ and that high standard that you'll never meet was met for you by Jesus Christ on the cross. And you now have his righteousness, so you're to go and live in his power to the best of your ability like Jesus more and more every day. Others of you have never taken that step of faith. You've never put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're relying on your own righteousness and you think that in your own good works you're going to make it. I'm telling you, you have as much chance of doing that as running and jumping over the Grand Canyon. You have no chance. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died on the cross for you. And he desires that you would repent and turn to him. Give him your sin. Let him give you his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for, um, for his righteousness that's, that's given to me, that's imputed to me, that's transferred to me. Father, you know my sin. You know all the ways I fall short more ways than even I imagine. The standard's so much higher than I can imagine. Yet I also know that because I've given my life to Jesus, you've given me his righteousness. You've changed me. And while I still sin, my primary identity is, is no longer in sin, but in Christ, and I'm growing to be like him. Help me do that. I pray for those, Father, who have also made that choice that you'd help each of them to grow in righteousness and holiness. Help our church in that way. And I, I pray for those who've never made that decision. Maybe even today in their seat, they would, they would make that choice to turn from their sin and Jesus turn to you recognizing that the standard they thought was there is nowhere close to the standard that you have of perfection. Give them grace to trust in your son, be made new, and be found in him. Father, we love you. Uh, we pray all this through your son, Jesus. Amen.